On June 25, 2017, almost three years before the pandemic, Farid Zakaria on his CNN show GPS predicted that small but deadly pathogens posed one of the biggest threats to the United States and the world. The United States, he warned, was wholly unprepared to deal with it. Now, Farid Zakaria is ahead of the curve again with 10 lessons for a post-pandemic world. COVID-19 is speeding up history, but what shape will the future take? Zakaria helps readers to understand the political, social, technological, and economic consequences that may take years to unfold, all distilled in 10 lessons. 10 lessons for a post-pandemic world by Farid Zakaria, on sale now wherever books are sold from W. W. Norton. Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Hello, everybody, wherever you are on December 7th. Welcome to our live Lit Hub audience. This is a first for Lit Hub. We're going to be live on all their shows in future. Um, it, as I said, is December the 7th uh, in uh, 2020. Whether you're on the west coast of America, as I am, or in Beirut, Lebanon, as my guest today is. Uh, 2020, of course, is an iconic year. Uh, Larry Summers, the Harvard uh, economist, has argued it's a hinge year, like 1914 or 1938. And we've talked a lot about 2020 as this hinge year, as this moment in history where everything changes. But of course, uh, in our age of Twitter and Facebook and LitHub, indeed, we are terribly contemporary and we forget about the past. My guest today has written a book about another hinge year, a hinge year which I think is less well known, certainly in the West, 1979. Uh, Kim uh, Khatas, and, I, and that's the last time I'm going to pronounce your last name, Kim, because I made a, a horrible mess of it, uh, is a very distinguished ex-BBC journalist and authority on the Middle East broadly. She's talking to me from Lebanon. And she has the acclaimed book, Black Wave, Saudi Arabia, Iran, and the 40-year rivalry that unraveled culture, religion, and collective memory in the Middle East. Uh, uh, Kim, why is 1979 in your mind and in your book this critical hinge year for the Middle East? Uh, Andrew, first, thank you so much for having me uh, on the show. It's great to speak to you from Beirut. Uh, I chose 1979, or I didn't chose, but I wrote about 1979, and I based my thesis on that year as a hinge year for the Middle East, because 1979 ushered in a lot of changes that were more than just geopolitical changes. There are many turning points in the Middle East. 
1948, the creation of Israel, 1967, the Six-Day War, uh, the end of the Ottoman Empire earlier in the 20th century. All of these were political, uh, brought about political change, geopolitical change. 1979 brought about geopolitical change, but also cultural, social, and religious changes. And the reason for that is because what happened in 1979 are three key events, the Iranian revolution and the return to Iran of Ayatollah Khomeini, the siege of Mecca in Saudi Arabia by Saudi zealots, and the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. Those three events, first unrelated, become inextricably linked, and they change the Middle East and the region, the wider uh, Muslim world, in ways that no other year had done before. Uh, what we see happen on the geopolitical level is that Iran and Saudi Arabia, two countries that were allies before, twin pillars in U.S. policy, become mortal enemies. That is the geopolitical part. The Soviet invasion of Afghanistan is also geopolitical. Uh, but the, the, the transformation of Iran and Saudi Arabia into enemies as they start to vie for dominance, for hegemony in the region, means that they also start using religion. Uh, in their toolbox of uh, dominance. So a Sunni country and a Shia country that were previously perfectly happy to be friends become mortal enemies and start using religion and sectarian identities to fight this war against each other. And as they do that, they weaponize sectarian identities and that leads to a rise of intolerance and eventually sectarian violence. And in the course of all of that, we see a rise of cultural intolerance across the region as these two countries start fighting a war of sort of, you know, holier than thou, who is the real Muslim leader? And I describe how this unfolds across 40 years. Kim, you grew up in the Lebanon. Uh, you're uh, half Lebanese, half Dutch. We even have a map of the Lebanon for people lucky enough to be watching this. To what extent was growing up in Lebanon a, a kind of a, a, a preview? Because, of course, you grew up bef before 1979. To what extent was it a preview for what happened after 1979? Actually, without giving away my age, oh. I didn't grow up that much I, before 1979. I realized I, I put my foot in it. I, I, I wasn't fishing for your age, but certainly, uh, certainly the history of... of right. We, I don't we, mind my age. I was born in 1977, okay. two years into the Civil War, uh, but not enough of a preview for what life was like before right. 1977. You, you weren't working for the BBC at the age of two, I assume. No, I was, I was, I was but, not. But in all seriousness, Kim, um, the, the history of Lebanon is, is a very bloody one before 1979. I grew up a, a generation or two before you, and I was addicted to Robert Fisk and all the news from the Lebanon and the Civil War. So it's not as if the history of violence and, and indeed even religious violence uh, didn't exist before 1979. Was Lebanon, in a sense, the, the, the dress rehearsal for the post-1979 world in the Middle East? It's a very good uh, word, uh, Andrew, dress rehearsal, because although, of course, before 1979, there were coups and wars uh, in the Middle East and revolutions, uh, there was nothing like what happened after 1979 because of what I described as this cultural, social, religious change. And you're right that the civil war in Lebanon started in 1975. And in a way, 
it was a dress rehearsal because Iranian revolutionaries, in a little-known story, trained in Lebanon in what was a bit of a free-for-all where revolutionaries from around the world came to train here with the Palestinian uh, guerrilla fighters. Uh, this was still the era of the left, of the international liberation movements from you know, Angola to Cuba, etc. And the Palestinians were here fighting for uh, the liberation of, of Palestine, which had become modern-day Israel. And um, Iranian revolutionaries were here as well, training with the Palestinians in the hope of being able to overthrow uh, the Shah. So it was a bit of a staging ground. A lot of money came through here. Uh, the cassette tapes that I describe in the book that were used to rally the masses uh, in, in Iran were recorded. Many of them were recorded in Lebanon, smuggled into Iran. And um, what also happened here in Lebanon is the separation between the left or the schism between the left and the growing movement towards Islamic uh, activism, Islamic political Islam. So the revolutionaries, the Iranian revolutionaries in Lebanon were both Islamists and uh, leftist nationalists. But those who came out on top in the end, who were victorious or who were able to uh, overcome the challenges once Ayatollah Khomeini returned to Iran, were the Islamists, were those who espoused an Islamic vision of the country. They were able to erase everyone else, often physically eliminating them, assassinating them. So the left was eliminated and Ayatollah Khomeini uh, hijacked the revolution and turned Iran into an Islamic uh, Republic. Kim, um, uh, and I don't want to accuse you of anything, it would be inappropriate, but are you in some ways nostalgic for a, a pre-1979 Arab leftist nationalism? Um, I'm not nostalgic because I didn't live that period and I can't be a, a secular nationalism and and for those people who who, who don't have a screen I, I'm bringing up a couple of alongside Kim's wonderful book Black Wave the Arab Awakening the history of the Arab peoples books about Arab nationalism of course classic books written in the 20th century before 1979 I got a sense that you are certainly a secularist and someone very much committed to um, uh, a critique of religion broadly is that fair political I'm religion i'm not i'm not the only one and what i try to do in my writing is to bring forward the many 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 voices in this region who feel that the way forward is one with uh, that is that is that is built on pluralism diversity tolerance and more secular values uh, or more secular politics. Um, you can be conservative in your understanding of your own religion. You can be a practicing Muslim or a practicing Christian, for that matter, and still believe in the separation of church and state or mosque and state. And I think that the region has been reduced in media coverage and a lot of writing to headlines about fanatics, tyrants, and dictators and terrorists. And I think this region is much more diverse than this. And that's what I try to amplify in my writing. Certainly the young generation is thirsty for very different politics and they feel that religion has played too big a role and often a destructive role 
in the politics and the life of their countries. Overall, I would say that this, this um, book that I, that I wrote, Black Wave, is not driven by nostalgia. It's driven by a desire to understand where did we take a wrong turn? How did we end up where we are today? Right. And I think it's very important not only to look at the role of Western powers at driving the action in the region with invasions, coups, uh, support for various dictators, but to also look at the agency and the role of the regional powers. And that includes mainly Iran and Saudi Arabia in, in the region. We can leave the Israeli-Palestinian conflict for right, another discussion. Uh, that, that's another show. Um, and again, for those people who are just listening, we have a map of the Middle East on, 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 the, uh, on, on the screen, which shows the importance both of Iran, the geographical importance of, Girard, of Iran and Saudi. Very briefly, uh, Kim, because I know this is a complicated story, what went wrong in Iran? The, the, the revolution had so much promise, didn't it, in 1979? You call it the cassette revolution. It shows the importance historically of technology, whether it's cassettes or YouTube or, or, or MySpace or, or Facebook. Mm. What went wrong in Iran? And is it a completely failed revolution? It was successful for those who rose on top right, uh, for Ayatollah Khomeini and for his acolytes, for those who wanted religion to play a bigger role, uh, they were successful. Uh, those who were not successful were the more, uh, you know, perhaps naive, idealistic, leftist, nationalist, and Islamist modernists who believe that uh, Iran should build its society, economy, and future on more Islamic values and not just copy the Western model, the Western template, which is what the Shah was doing with his white revolution, which is what people rose up against. Why did it fail um, or why did it end up how it ended up? It's because people like Ayatollah Khomeini were ruthless, as were his acolytes. They were willing to use violence and force to eliminate those who did not espouse their worldview. And that's how the, all revolutions uh, eat their children, you know, in the famous uh, sentence. Um, uh, that was, of course, used originally for the French Revolution. Yes, uh, the revolutions eat their eat So their it's a classic, in, in your mind, the, Ira the, the Iranian Revolution is, is a classic revolution like the French or the Soviet or the Chinese Revolution in the elites took power in the name of the people and essentially governed. Well, in this case, it was the clerical establishment, the very... Um, the very uh, the most radical wing of the clerical establishment because there were much more moderate clerics who did not believe that religion should rule and they were also pushed aside or eliminated. Kim, uh, most of our audience will be familiar with the Iranian revolution of, of 1979. Will people be less familiar with what happened in Saudi? Uh, the mosque siege and I'm quoting a BBC headline, I don't know if one of your colleagues may have written it, the mosque siege that changed the course of Saudi history. Why in your narrative is this mosque siege in Mecca in 1979 so critical for the whole region? Because it happened in 1979, the same year as the Iranian revolution, where the Saudi royals saw 
what could happen to a monarch, the Shah in Iran, if the clerical establishment um, did not get what it wanted, did not get more uh, religion infused in political life and rose up and brought the masses with it to bring down uh, the monarch. Now, the difference between Iran and Saudi Arabia is, of course, Iran has a much longer history, much more advanced, much more culture, uh, art, music. It was very westernized in some parts, still very rural in others, but it had this rapid modernization that was very difficult to handle for some parts of the country and some parts of society. Saudi Arabia is a much more conservative uh, country where religion ruled already, uh, and you had parts of society that were more forward-looking, that were more progressive in you know, some provinces like uh, the, the Hejaz province, uh, home to Mecca and Medina, actually, but on the Red Sea, and so gateways to, um, to the two holy cities with pilgrims coming through. There was much more cosmopolitanism there already. But the interior desert was deeply conservative, where what ruled was what is commonly known uh, a bit pejoratively, but you know we can use the term Wahhabism, ultra-orthodox, literalist, puritanical, um, and deeply uh, rejectionist of any other understanding of Islam. And, and essentially, and your, your argument in the book is that the the traditionalists, the anti-modernizers, won because of the, or as a consequence, in some ways, of the uh, of the. Uh, Siege. of the violence of the siege in Mecca. Well, what happened was that zealots who were on the, you know, on the fringe took over the mosque for two weeks, laid siege to it, and hold, had all these demands of the royals. And the royals wanted to basically, you know, save their throne. And what they did is they gave away the keys of the kingdom to the clerical establishment and said, okay, we, are, we heard you. These, this group of, you know, a couple dozen people, guys in, in the holy mosque, um, are, are making all these demands. We need to put out this, this uprising and we'll give you whatever you want as the clerical establishment to make sure um, that we preserve uh, the kingdom in a way. And that's what happened. Um, religion already had a huge role, but there were sort of openings, more education for girls, women on television, some music, some music here and there. Uh, radio was allowed, then television was allowed. Um, the religious police was there, but they didn't have so much power. And after 1979, they were literally handed the, key, the, 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 the keys to the kingdom. And what happened, because it was 1979, and Ayatollah Khomeini nearby had grand designs about his leadership well beyond the borders of Iran, the Saudis felt threatened not only within their country, but in the region, in the Muslim world. They felt threatened and undermined in their role as leaders of the Muslim world and custodians of the two holy sites. And so without, and so beyond only just reinforcing the role of religion in their own country, they started actively, methodically proselytizing outside of their borders and throwing a lot of money around to uh, proselytize their version of Islam. And meanwhile, as if that's not enough, we've got the We've got the conservative clerisy coming to power, the, the Shia clerisy in Iran, the, the victory of the hardline hard Sunnis in, in Saudi Arabia. Uh, 41 years ago this month, in December 1979, Soviet tanks 
rolled into Afghanistan. This is the third leg of, of, of this hinge year. Why does this matter so much? It matters because it gives the Saudis a way to, um, you know, burnish their credentials again as leaders of the Muslim world by uh, funding the war effort against the Saudis. And it gives them an opportunity to get rid of all the zealots that they have nurtured within their own country and send them to fight in, in Afghanistan. That leads to the arming of political Islam. Young hotheads around the region who are just discovering the power of, of religion, discover the power of the gun, and they get drunk on that power on the battlefield. And they come from Egypt, from, from Algeria, from Jordan, uh, and they fight, and from Saudi Arabia, of course. Of they course, fight yeah, the most famous of all from Saudi Arabia. Of course. They fight in Afghanistan and they come back as hardened, not only political Islamists, but hardened militants. And you see the repercussions across the region, starting with Egypt and the attacks against tourists in, in, in Egypt, but also against Egyptian progressive secular Muslims. So in a sense, uh, Afghanistan becomes the full-blown on-Broadway version of Lebanon after 1979. Um, I mean, yes and no. It's a bit different because the fault lines are different. The players are... But I mean, the uses of violence and militias and foreign powers getting involved. And of course, it led, as, as, as our American audience will know, to the ultimately to the American invasion of Afghanistan after 9-11. I had a, um, a soldier on the show a couple of weeks ago writing about his book, images of this. Uh, many beautiful young Afghanis bound up in this war. So certainly the war came home. Kim, one of the images or metaphors you have in your book, which I found interesting, is the idea of this triangle of the United States, Iran and Saudi Arabia. Uh, you ask at the book, what happened to us, meaning us being the people of the Middle East? Would it be fair to say that they are the ones imprisoned in this triangle? Or is that a bit unfair on the United States? Should we include Russia as well? Well, today we should certainly include uh, Russia as a really destructive player in the region. The devastation in Syria is uh, beyond words. And since 2015, that rests on Vladimir Putin's uh, conscience, not you know, Amongst other things, he has a, a heavy conscience, I would guess. But but going back yes. to this 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 triangle. But I triangle because um, what I describe is how both Saudi Arabia and Iran have a role to play in bringing about the, you know, bringing us closer to, to the abyss and how they are in this triangle with the United States as they play the United States uh, and they play off against each other. And what I think policymakers in Washington should really consider is how to balance these relationships and how the US needs to think about both its relationship with Saudi Arabia and with Iran. There is a tendency in Washington to think that Iran is all bad and therefore the US should you know, be closer to Saudi Arabia or to think that Saudi Arabia is all bad and therefore it should find a way to make peace with Iran when actually it needs to look at that as a triangle and see how it can balance those um that dynamic speaking of but the people of the region, 
happen? Because I do want to say something about the people of the region, um, uh, Andrew, because they are really at the core of my of my book. This this is a book about culture, about societies, about poetry, about art, and about the people who, for forty years, fought back against this wave of of darkness. Um, from Egypt to Pakistan, you know, you have uh, television anchors, writers, clerics, intellectuals, um, movie directors, novelists who fight back and often pay with their life or have to go into exile right, right, because right. they fight right. against the darkness. Three, uh, uh, and they're three not, of the, uh, I, I have the Iranian general assassinated, but uh, Oda, Tassir, and Khashoggi, of course, examples. Yeah, but book. I would Suleimani with these other three uh, towering intellectuals because Qasem Suleimani is one of the people that the majority, a progressive, pluralistic, diverse majority in this region is hoping to get rid of. And he has, of course, been killed. Mm. He was killed almost exactly a year ago. So I would not put militants and revolutionary commanders from the IRGC uh, in the same uh, uh, picture as people like Salman Tassir, uh, ja uh, Salman um, Jamal Khashoggi, and Nasser Abu Zaid, and Farag Foda, who fought for a diverse, pluralistic region, which is the complete opposite of what Qasem Soleimani fought. For. Yeah, and I, and I only in included his photo in, in the sense that we have sort of a, a culture of assassination and of violence. Uh, Conducted by someone like Qasem right, Soleimani. Right. I mean, and who are people are... Uh, ironically, uh, uh, Kim, you suggest in a, in, a, in a very provocative recent piece in Atlantic that the Middle East might, or at least Lebanon, might be arriving in America. You, you suggest mm -hmm. America's future might be Lebanon. Is that something to, given the fact that you're proudly Lebanese, is that something we should celebrate or be worried about in the United a States? A bit of both. Um, I think I have a friend who, who, who quoted this article and said uh, he was hoping that I was uh, talking about America's future being polyglot and, um, and uh, you know, all about old cuisine and, 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 and gourmet food, which is what Lebanon is also known about. Um, the article is a little bit more of, a, um, of, a, of an alarm bell about what happens in societies when um, polarization sets in, when diversity and tolerance are pushed aside, and when tribes, Democrats, Republicans, or Sunnis, Shias, uh, feel that their existence is, is threatened. And very often, as I write in the piece, I wake up in Lebanon to headlines, and I'm not quite sure whether they're about the Middle East or whether they're about America. And I find that quite quite worrying. And what I describe in, in the piece, what I warn about in the piece is that it's not because there's been an election that we turn the page. And we see now, even after President-elect Biden is clearly the winner, we see that this intolerance, this tension, um, the militias, um, the call to doubt the result of the elections, that is still continuing. Right. That is what's going to be difficult to roll back and, and undo. But uh, what everyone puts out there as an example is its ability, despite everything, to hold on to the middle ground. And it's from this middle ground, this center, 
that you can rebuild a more tolerant and diverse society. And come to think of it, your your phrase, what uh, what happened to us uh, is increasingly being used, uh, as you say, it's the, the sort of the tagline of your book and of the narrative in the Middle East, but it's also increasingly the thing that Americans are asking themselves, what happened to yeah. us? Very briefly, we don't have a lot more time, Kim, but there's so much to talk about here. Uh, and I apologize if I'm interrupting. A bit. Um, you wrote your last book before uh, Black Wave was The Secretary, which was a book about your 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 um, your experiences covering Hillary Clinton, the uh, Secretary of State. Very briefly, given uh, Biden's coming to power, Clinton, of course, isn't going to be Secretary of State. What advice would you give Biden if he happens to be watching about U.S. policy in the Middle East, particularly given the fact that we're on the brink, we're told of this big deal, Israeli peace deal with the Gulf. Um, what what should Biden be focused on? And he comes to power in January 2021. First, he should read my book, of, of course, course yes. Blackway. Um, because it is important to move away from certain stereotypes about the Middle East. Um, Sunnis and Shias have not always killed each other. It's too easy to say, oh, it's always been like that. It will always be like that. Saudi Arabia and Iran have not always been enemies. It, you know, it's important to keep that in mind. And extremism and intolerance have not always been the headlines that come with this region. So that's one. Because if you don't know what the history is, uh, then you cannot build forward. If you don't know that within the region there are the seeds for a better future because we have a different past, then you're trying constantly to reinvent uh, the wheel. For President-elect Biden in particular, um, because he's had some you know, interesting suggestions in the past that I disagree with uh, along the lines of, you know, we should divide up Iraq or Afghanistan will never be a real country. I think it's important to listen to the people. Uh, very few people in this region are calling for the breakup of nations. Uh, most people are proud of their nationality. They're not calling for pan-Arab nationalism, but they're proud of their country and their national identity. There are tweaks to be made. There are uh, new uh, issues to, to deal with when it comes to governance and justice and, um, and, and accountability. I think looking forward, uh, American policy should find a way to better balance values and interests. That is a sentence that Hillary Clinton used to say often that we try as America or they try as America to balance values and interests. It doesn't always work, but certainly more effort can, can be made. And then finally, I would say, learn from the mistakes of the Obama administration. Uh, with all my respect for the human beings at the heart of American foreign policy who try to do their best, certainly they did in previous administrations. I think you know, the Trump administration was a bit different in, in how things were conducted. But the human beings at the heart of American foreign policy are fallible uh, and they make mistakes. But I found that Obama administration officials have been loath to admit some of their mistakes. And I think that um, President-elect Biden is surrounding himself with some very good people. I know them. And I know that they have thought very hard about the, the policies that were conducted, that were elaborated, that were followed during the Obama administration. And I think they have learned from that. And I think they have learned from particularly uh, some of the shortcomings or uh, the idealism mm. uh, or the expediency 
of some of the policies under the Obama administration. Uh, we uh, had, think- uh, Kim, we had uh, your colleague, uh, Clarissa Ward, who's also written a book about her, actually her more of an autobiography of her experiences reporting on the Middle East, the CNN correspondent on the show. And she was also very, very critical of the Obama regime, particularly, uh, I think it's Ben Rhodes. Um, very briefly, I don't want to get into to Rhodes, but the fact that you and Clarissa are obviously both women, um, can you very briefly talk about being a, a female journalist in an area which, for better or worse, is still being marked by horrible violence? You've covered some of the most violent conflicts in the world. Uh, it doesn't come out in your book because your book isn't as personal, but uh, it's, it's there. Uh, could you say something about that? Yes, I'm going to say something that might surprise you and, and your viewers and, and your listeners. Uh, I know that being a woman in the Arab world is very difficult. There are uh, a lot of uh, um, obstacles, a lot of discrimination in the law and in behaviors. There's a lot to be done. Uh, I know that the lives of women uh, can be very difficult in this region. But I also want to make sure that people understand that the lives of women everywhere are very difficult. I think of Japan, I think of the high rate of domestic violence in countries like Spain, uh, Latin America, and even in the US. And I want to say something that will surprise people. I personally, this is a experience, have never felt any obstacles to myself or my work as a woman in the region. Quite the contrary. I have found it to be an advantage. Uh, I've always been respected. I've always been welcomed. I've always had the access that I need as a journalist. People respected me in my profession. What I found actually very surprising is the amount of sexism I had to deal with when I was in the U.S. Something that, strangely enough, I had, again, personally not encountered in that way in the Arab world. And it is a very personal experience. I'm not generalizing. And so um, I've always found that my work as a journalist was quite uh, easy uh, in the region. I know it's not the case for everyone. So I want to again say that it's a personal experience and that I was shocked by the sexism that I had to deal with when I was a correspondent in, in the United States. That's really interesting. I hope maybe that'd be the subject of your of your next book, Kim. Uh, you end the book with a quote from Kierkegaard, the Danish uh, existential philosopher, 19th century. Uh, you, he, he wrote, it is perfectly true that life must be understood backwards, but they forget the other proposition that it must be lived forwards, suggesting that we need to forget the past. But you also say that the region's suffering from amnesia. How do we go forward while maintaining a memory? Is that the challenge and the opportunity collectively, not only perhaps in the Middle East, but everywhere in the world? I would read that Kierkegaard quote slightly differently. I mean, I think that it's about understanding the past so that you can better map out the future. Because I think that if you uh, allow yourself to uh, accept uh, narratives that come to dominate for various reasons, like Sunnis and Shias have always killed each other, then you cannot build better forward. If you think it's always been like this, then your policies for the future are going to take that in. Whereas it's not true. Sectarian violence between Sunnis and Shias is a modern phenomena in the way that it is today. It's a historical schism, but Sunnis and Shias have not always killed each other the way we've seen over the past couple of decades. So my book tries to 
have tries to put forward or tries to 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 um, to write down uh, a memory to revisit the past to try to understand it better to try to provide a roadmap for the future by understanding the past if if that's not too convoluted a way of of putting it but it's only by understanding how things unraveled that we can understand or that we can find a way to build this future by understanding that we have, again, as I said, within us, the seeds of tolerance, of diversity, of culture, of a more vibrant past, and we don't need to reinvent the wheel. All these policy experts in the West who are devising these countering violent extremism you know, projects, trying to understand how you counter this one specific phenomena, uh, in a way are ignoring that the past was much more diverse and tolerant and vibrant. And therefore, uh, you know, you cannot go back to the past, but you can use these elements to build forward and understand that this region is really thirsty for a future that is um, just, that is um, uh, not sectarian, that is not suffocated by religion, and that ha that holds that is able to hold to hold its leaders to account. Ironically enough, the black wave uh, or uh, Kim Khatas's black wave is anything but a black wave. As um, if you're looking for uh, a book about toleration and culture and vitality um, in the Middle East, from from Lebanon to Saudi to to, to Iran, this is the book that everyone needs to read. Uh, it's on everyone's best seller list. I want to congratulate you again on the book, Kim. Um, finally, in this strange hinge year, perhaps the great, the first great hinge year after 1979, what else should people be reading? You're in uh, Beirut. I'm not sure if you're locked down. I'm certainly locked down in California. What would be a good book to make sense of our current predicament, Kim? Mm. You know, in years like uh, 2020, where the world seems to be, you know, completely, um, uh, you know, um, crazy. Um, it's not a very um, eloquent word, but I can't come up with another one right now. Uh, and at moments where I felt that this region was unraveling even further with the violence of the Islamic, so-called Islamic State and the, the, the horrific killings in Syria and the war in Yemen, I, I always go back to Ian Burma's book, uh, The Year Zero, about 1945, and the terrible state that the world was in after World War II, and all the rebuilding and the mending, and um, you know the, the 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 hope that had to be found somewhere from around from from amidst the rubble. Um, it's a reminder of how bad. <laughs> Uh, to say the least, things were uh, during World War II and right after, and how much work had to be done and how much adversity had to be overcome. But it can be done. And so I know it's sort of a little bit, you know, ironic that I should read a book about misery to remind myself that, you know, we've had worse times. But in a way, you know, reading these kinds of books gives you context, gives you perspective. Uh, humanity has been through worse and we can overcome this. It's also why people read Viktor Frankl's book about, you know, his experience uh, in concentra concentration, concentration camps, excuse me, um, and, and actually derive hope from how you hold on to, to life and to hope 
to move forward. And that's how we survived also uh, 15 years of civil war in Lebanon, by realizing that the only way forward is holding on to hope, not naively, but going about it day by day, hoping for the best and um, building as best as you can um, this future that you want to see become reality. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.